Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. This is a very special part two recording because last week you heard from HD, the man behind hormonesdemystified.com, and he had so much incredible information to share that I broke the episode into two parts. So if you have not listened to part one, you're going to want to go back listen to part one, and then listen to this episode, which is part two. In both episodes, HD debunks myths relating to perimenopause, menopause, thyroid hormones, testosterone, cortisol, functional medicine, naturopathy, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from HD again. Enjoy. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Should we trust generally that our primary care physicians are ordering the correct labs and interpreting them correctly? Or if you have a couple of the symptoms you mentioned, which, you know, of course, like you said, I have a little extra fat, I'm a little tired, my skin's kind of dry. Should that person seek out an endocrinologist or just trust the primary care physician? And I guess when should somebody seek out an endocrinologist? Sure. I think if the primary care physician is someone who, with whom you have, you know, a really good relationship and you feel like they take your questions seriously and they give thoughtful, nuanced answers. And, you know, they, they give you an answer uh, about your thyroid testing and they explain it to you. And they're able to really address all the questions that came up during your, let's say you've been reading and researching this stuff and you found a whole bunch of things online and, you know, everything they say in response to all the information you bring in seems to make sense, you know, then your return on investment for seeking endocrinology consultation is probably going to be pretty low. We, we may not really have a whole lot else to offer. Uh, but I think 
as you start asking more detailed questions and your PCP's answers start getting more and more vague or dismissive or just insufficiently explanatory, uh, then the ROI for seeing endo starts to really go up. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, if, if people really love their PCP, but they don't feel optimized, let's say with the thyroid, for example, sometimes it helps to see endo. I mean, I know tons of really awesome PCPs who I would trust my own healthcare to. I've seen their patients and their patients have left my office getting a way more nuanced explanation. And it's not always because I know so much more than the PCPs. It's that they have a zillion other things to do in a very short amount of time. So they may know a lot of what I know. They, they, they just don't mm-hmm. have the time to explain all that. But you know, I, I would typically have 40 minutes for a new patient consult. And you know, that's a good amount of time to sit down and really dig in and explain like everything. The pa- the person comes in with, you know, the stuff their alt med provider ordered and all these things they read online and then, you know, like two pages worth of questions. And I can go through all of that and their PCP maybe can't. So sometimes people would just need to see me once and they'd be like, yeah, okay, I guess, I guess I'm okay. I get, you know, at least from with my thyroid, I guess I'm okay. I, I'll, I'll go chase down some other leads. Mm-hmm. I think often I've seen as well when people feel frustrated that they aren't getting enough proper care from their primary care physician, rather than going straight to an endocrinologist, that's when they'll turn to a functional medicine doctor and think that they have some secret answers. Mm -hmm. So why would you advise against this? Why would you say PCP to endo versus PCP to functional medicine? Functional medicine, uh, the the <laughs> F word. Um, so a functional medicine doctor, in some ways, they they actually make me more angry than naturopaths because they start out. Most of them, I believe, are MDs or DOs. So they yeah. they actually started out with better training. Um, I mean, you'll be. I don't know if you've come across the blog Naturopathic Diaries. I haven't. No. Oh, okay. This is one of the most brilliant blogs that I've ever come across in my life, Naturopathic Diaries. It's written by a former naturopath. She sort of renounced her her naturopathy degree. Mm. Um, her name is Britt Hermes or Hermes. And um, uh, she basically went through the, the training, became a naturopath, and then got out into the world and realized that it's just... It, the, 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 there's so much wrong with it. I, I won't be able to do it justice. So anyway, she has a, a blog that sort of goes through in really impressive detail how deficient the medical education is at naturopathy school. And she did, she did this um, mainly to try to protect uh, people who are going to be seeing naturopaths, but also I think to sort of reach out to prospective naturopathic school students to say, hey, listen, you know, if you're going to do this, you really got to know what you're getting into here. So, you know, I guess my point is that the naturopaths never had a chance I mean, it, their, their medical education is so incredibly deficient, but the functional medicine docs are actually docs and they decided to just go to the dark side. 
um, it's it's really what functional medicine is is it's it's really clever marketing, and I think it it sort of this evolution of all this stuff used to be called quackery, and and Brooke, you can cut me off if I get too ranty here. Um, all this stuff used to be called quackery, and then eventually it sort of morphed into like, well, we don't want to this to be quackery because that sounds really bad. We're, we're going to call it alternative medicine. That sounds mm. better, friendlier. And then, you know, at, over time, alternative medicine wasn't good enough because, you know, it's, it's, it's alternative. It's not validated. It's not accepted by the, the mainstream. So then they came up with CAM, which is complementary and alternative medicine. So they use this acronym CAM. It's like, oh, it's complementary. And, you know, so it's, it just is friendlier. And, and then that morphed into integrative medicine, which basically was um, this branch of nonsense that purports to incorporate the actual stuff that works from alt med into regular med. Um, but when something works, we actually just call it medicine. It's not alternative medicine anymore because it has an evidence base. So, you know, integrative medicine just ropes in things like Reiki and aromatherapy and acupuncture and homeopathy and all these other theatrical placebos that have no evidence base, nor any plausible mechanism to work for the conditions that they're intended to treat. So then you get functional medicine, which is sort of like, I don't know, maybe an off brand of integrative medicine. And what they'll do is they'll be like, oh, you want to see evidence to back up what we do? Uh, what's, what are the clinical trials going to tell you? Trial can't account for the way that your special individual body is going to respond to this very personalized combination of herbals and vitamins and minerals and medications, which by the way, I have right here on my shelf and I can sell to you. Um, or I can even give you an infusion right before you leave the office. You know, here's some vitamin C. Um, it, it's just, it's so slimy. Uh, it, so anyway, um, when people go to a functional medicine doctor, what's, what's typically going to happen is they're going to have hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars of tests ordered. And many of these are not going to have any evidence base for it. And we have no idea what to do with the results. And, and it may be even something that could be important, you know, or could prove to be important eventually. So as an example, like, um, I think most people have heard of the gut microbiome, you know, you've got all these bacteria yeah. in your gut, they're super important. And we know hardly anything in the grand scheme of things about the gut microbiome. But there are all these companies that offer gut microbiome testing, but outside of research studies that are looking at these things and trying to figure out what to do with it, we honestly have no idea what to do with the levels. So if you have a high level of a certain kind of bacteria, does that mean you need to lower it? If you have a low level, do you need to raise it? Do you just need to balance all of them? What combination of pre and probiotics should you even use to, to do that? Like, do we know how to do that? So I have no problem if somebody wants to take a pre probiotic for gut health and try to achieve some sort of clinical end result with that. But the the hundreds of dollars of gut microbiome testing are worthless to get to that purpose. And that's what I see the functional med doctors doing. And I guess the caveat here should be that, you know, I, I, I see a selected group of people who have been to functional med doctors, worked with them for a bit, and then not gotten any satisfaction to come to see me. So of course, I'm not going to be seeing the people 
who may have been treated completely appropriately and are happy with their care. Um, so maybe there are some functional medicine things that are done out there that are totally reasonable that I'm unaware of, but based on the sort of weekend training sessions that I see these, these, um, docs being offered, uh, online or in these, with these weekend seminars where they teach you how to order very expensive things and push very expensive devices, infrared, this and that it's just a, a field that is rife with crack quackery. And, uh, I really would strongly advise that people avoid it. And it seems that if you go to an endocrinologist, your insurance will probably cover at least more of that than it would for functional medicine. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, I would, I would guess that, well, I mean, I, I don't know if there are functional med docs, you know, that, that just work off of cash basis. I, I would bet that they do do that. Um, but there may very well, since they have to, you know, real degrees, MDs, DOs, uh, they may have insurance, um, except insurance for the office visits, but all the stuff they order, um, mm. yeah, may very well not be covered by, by insurance. And, um, and those, those lab tests, uh, are, it's no joke when it comes to the, the cost of those things. I mean, people have, uh, bills that they wind up getting for, you know, over a thousand dollars, $2,000 for some of these things. And I think, like you said, the marketing, it's just sad because somebody is just feeling terrible and they want to feel better. And then they think, oh, this person says they have answers that no one else has. So I have to go to them. And then they get thousands of dollars worth of tests and supplements. And then they're still left feeling terrible. And then that's probably when they come to you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one -on -one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. You mentioned earlier about this trend of ordering your own blood work. Can you address that a little bit more? Yeah. So, so I guess we should probably start with the general reasons why that's not a good idea. Uh, the, the first thing, and I know that people are going to be a little resistant to hearing this, but your internet research is not the same thing as a medical degree. And I don't, I don't mean that to sound as harsh as it sounds, but you do need some guidance to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff out there. And, uh, you, you really, you should have sort of an objective person who has more training again, sort of knowing your assay, knowing the clinical suspicion, all that. Uh, second thing is, you can't be objective about your health. And this applies to everyone, even, even docs. Uh, I, I love to tell the story about there's a surgeon who, um, 
I was friendly with, and he was telling me the story of how he had some issues, uh, some symptoms, and he was convinced, totally convinced it was going to be pancreatic cancer. So he went out and he increased his life insurance policy. And uh, and then he went to the doctor and he went to his PCP and he's like, ah, oh, yeah, I need a CT scan, you know, to diagnose my pancreatic cancer. And his PCP was like, why don't we just start with like some liver enzymes? And he just had something that was completely you know, unremarkable and, and, you know, not fatal and, and all, all of his sort of histrionics were for nothing. Um, so the idea that you're going to be the exception to the rule and like order all the right stuff, uh, is it, it, it's naive, I think at best. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you got to understand the two pillars of, of not only endocrinology, but all lab testing, know your assay, know your pretest probability. Um, the other thing besides it just being a waste of money is that ordering unnecessary tests can lead to some pretty bad outcomes. Um, because, you know, like you, you said, people can order their tests themselves now. Um, and then they may be able, you know, through wherever, I didn't know about the Amazon thing, but, um, they may be able to, to get through, through other channels. Um, you know, for example, like, uh, uh, some sort of desiccated thyroid extract, which is, you know, pig thyroid, they may be able to get that online so they can diagnose their hypothyroidism. They can then treat it with that stuff. And that, that stuff, which we haven't really talked about, it, it, it tends to be something which is very easy to overdose on because it has a pretty high proportion of T3 in it. And T3 is this sort of short acting hormone that um, gives a little bit of a buzz or has at least has the potential to give a buzz. And when you take something like that, it, it gives a buzz, which eventually wanes um, after you've been on it for a while. So people will sort of take some and feel great. And then a few weeks later, they'll be like, oh, I'm not feeling as good now. I need to up my dose. So, you know, if that happens over and over and over, someone diagnoses their hypothyroidism, they get their desiccated thyroid extract, they increase the dose over the course of several months. Well, now all of a sudden they're on this insane dose of thyroid hormone, which can cause atrial fibrillation, which could cause a stroke and, you know, all sort of the, the, the cascade of bad events that can happen from there. And um, for people who are saying, oh, that's, that's such fear mongering. He's being so dramatic. This, you know, that's not going to happen. It, it totally happens. Uh, you know, there's, okay. there's lots of cases of this happening. So, um, so that's a bad idea, but to drill it down a little bit more for hormones, why you shouldn't order your own blood work. This direct to consumer testing thing is something that um, it's like the wild West out there. (laughs) There, So again, I think that people just assume that these tests have been blessed in some way by some regulatory agency. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is not, as much as you would think, and it, it gets really convoluted, and I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds here, but let's let's just say that the the FDA and CLIA and all that stuff, they're not really looking at your direct-to-consumer hormone testing as something that they care about. They're looking at this testing as more like it's not diagnostic testing. It's more like informational. It's like a supplement that claims... Um, or that says we're not making any claim about health here, even though we totally are. 
it, it's it's the same thing with these. They say like, oh, well, this is just like wellness testing. It's just for people who want information about their health, just so they can, you know, they can be informed, which sounds, I guess, you know, reasonable uh, if you don't scratch at all below the surface. But if you scratch even a little bit, you, you start to see things like, oh, okay, well, if I get this direct-to-consumer TSH test, it may actually give me something like a reasonably accurate result at a higher, like a much higher level of TSH. So let's say the normal range for TSH is 0.4 to 4.0. So maybe like if your TSH is around a 10 or something, it may give you an accurate result. And it's been a while since I've investigated these tests in great detail, but I think that was true at one point. Uh, but then when you start getting down to like the normal range, its accuracy is, is pretty bad, or at least it used to be. So, you know, if you're trying to guide your thyroid hormone dosing with these tests, forget it. You know, your, your, your test of a, of a TSH of one could equally be like a TSH of six. You just don't know. Um, and if you were to ask these direct to consumer lab testing companies, as I actually did once, uh, <laughs> during, <laughs> during a phone call. So short, short anecdote. I, I, I was roped into a phone call, um, that my organization was, was having with this company. It was a direct to consumer company and they were trying to part the direct to consumer lab testing company was trying to partner up with legitimate medical institutions, um, obviously to get more business. Cause this is a huge moneymaker. And, um, it was one of these, um, like WebEx phone calls, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I, unfortunately I didn't have audio. I couldn't speak. So I was just furiously typing in the chat, peppering <laughs> the CEO of this, of this company with all these questions. Like, have you done a correlation study between, um, you know, the years and, and actual testing in a, in a real lab? And, um, and he got really huffy and defensive because I was being kind of a troll, but you know, the, the point is that, if they actually had great data, they would be happy to release it. They would publish it on their website. They'd be like, yeah, we've totally done correlation studies. And, you know, look, this drop of blood testing that we can offer you in the comfort of your own home that you could just mail back to us correlates like almost perfectly with something you can get at a real lab. Right. But no, they, 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 don't, they don't do that because they, they can't. Uh, now, of course, there are certain tests that are going to be more accurate than others, but the hormonal testing in particular is often very problematic and sometimes completely worthless. So any type of test that comes back abnormal, yeah, maybe it's abnormal, maybe it's not, but you're going to need to have it confirmed at a real lab. And if you have a normal test result, um, let's say for TSH, but you feel like crap and you have a million risk factors for hypothyroidism, I would not be reassured by that normal TSH from the direct-to-consumer lab test. I would actually go to a real doc. So I think this this idea that that they're they're reliable and accurate and all that, it, it's um, – and may, again, maybe they're getting better in certain ways since the last time I've looked into this, but I haven't seen any correlation studies, so – uh, un until they come out with those, I'm going to be super skeptical. Well, and then it makes me think that if somebody's ordering their own blood tests, then they're happy to also kind of self-medicate through the things we discussed on Amazon, right? So mm. maybe they find something's low and then they start taking some supplement they read help. I mean, it's, it's just, I think, bottom line, best to get guidance from 
an MD. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Are there certain diet and lifestyle habits that help hormones function properly? I mean, they might just be kind of basic ones, but are there any sort of fringe ones that you would recommend that more people do or mm-hmm. even just basic ones that you wish more people would do to just support hormone function? Yeah. Um, so if there were specific fringe ones, I'd be happy to have you chime in with those. I mean, the basic ones, I guess, are going to be obvious. Uh, diet, exercise, sleep, meditation, stress reduction, nurturing your relationships. These these are all things that would lead to sort of naturally healthy hormones. Um, I mean, just I know people are going to say, well, that sounds awfully like vague in general, but you know, when you, when you have really crappy sleep, there are some perturbations of certain hormones like cortisol and things like that. Like, yeah, you know, that, that could lead to some issues. It's not something that you can address by trying to balance the cortisol, like doing something specifically to treat the cortisol. That's not the problem. The problem is your crappy sleep, you know? So mm-hmm. you, you really, most people need to do deep dives because I, I, at least I've found that the majority of people who think they've addressed everything, they, they haven't, they just, they've sort of addressed everything as much as they feel they can. You know, I mean, take, take me, you know, my sleep is janky sometimes, you know, and <laughs> I, I mean, more, more often than not. And, you know, I've tried to figure out my sleep. Uh, I've never really quite figured it out. I figured out certain things, you know, like I, I know if I do or don't do certain things, I'm going to have a bad night of sleep. Um, but I, I haven't gotten it to the point where I can reliably say like, I'm going to have a good night of sleep tonight. So, uh, yeah, there are probably other things that I just don't know that I don't know. And that that's I think something that people should be a little bit more open to, you know, if they think they've addressed everything in diet as best they can, well, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's also just a really good point that there probably aren't a lot of fringe things. The things we should be doing are going back to the basics and it feels boring when somebody's selling you some supplement or secret band-aid solution and it, maybe feels like, oh, I'll just turn to that thing instead of addressing all these others that are more complicated to kind of figure out. Yeah. The band-aids are so seductive, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's so easy. I mean, there are all these other fixes that I'm recommending the diet, exercise, sleep, and so on. Those are simple in that, you know, like it may not be necessarily all be easy and straightforward, but right. those are, those aren't those don't require any really complicated diagnostic measures. I mean, you know, everyone sort of has a general idea of what is good diet, what is good exercise, um, even if they can't always achieve it. Uh, but when that when that simple thing to address is very very hard, then it's very seductive to just go for the easy fix. It's like, oh yeah, just take some magnesium, you'll be all good. Mm, probably not. <laughs> Well, speaking of magnesium, are there any supplements that you found that most people do well on? Or is it, again, just very individualized? Like, Do you think a multivitamin is good for most people? Um, when you talk about like multivitamins and evidence as far as it resulting in any sort of um, 
hard outcome that we can measure that is better than people who don't take a multivitamin, the evidence is pretty terrible. But in, in general, I would say, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a multivitamin. I, I think it, most of the time that's that's not going to hurt. That's one of the few things people can do just to sort of round out maybe a few deficiencies, especially if let's say they live in an area that is prone to iodine deficiency. Uh, the normal amount of iodine in like a prenatal vitamin or multivitamin would be like 100 to 150 micrograms. And that's a that's a very respectable amount of iodine, so so that could be something. Um, you know, the, the, I would say most people are going to be advised, well advised to take a little bit of vitamin D, maybe a little bit of calcium. If we're talking about someone who is at risk for low bone density um, and doesn't really have enough calcium in the diet, dietary calcium is always better than calcium in a pill, but, you know, so it, it kind of de depends there, but, um, there's not something that there's not a lot of things that I recommend that people take supplement wise. I guess the only other thing I, I sometimes recommend is B12 for people who are at risk for B12 deficiency, like vegans, uh, or people who take uh, high dose um, acid blockers like omeprazole or lansoprazole, or you know, which are like the the Prilosex and Prevacids and that kind of stuff. Um, but um, or people who take um, high dose metformin uh, for diabetes, they can be at risk for B12 deficiency. But I would say in general, I'm, I'm not really big on supplements most of these things can be gotten from food and if you know your diet is somewhat deficient in something then yeah sure you can add in a little bit a little bit not the mega doses <laughs> those can cause problems <laughs> but a little bit of whatever you're you think you're missing just don't create expensive pee right as i hear it said Exa often yes totally <laughs> yeah most of these things will, will just wind up being excreted in the urine and they still need to be often detoxified by the liver and that can cause problems for mm. some of these high dose uh, herbals and vitamins. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So I guess for me, it means engaging in behaviors that I know to be good and trying to minimize the ones that I know to be bad. The The caveat there is you got to strike the right balance with these things and set yourself up for little wins because, you know, there's only so much willpower that you can exercise each day. So if, if you don't want to have like 10 to 20 struggle sessions with yourself every day, <laughs> you need to focus your willpower and your energy where you can get the most bang for your buck. So like if you're trying to be low carb, for example, um, and I just use this example because I, I, in general, I aim for a low-ish carb diet. I, I just, I, I feel that that works well for me. Um, I'm not super strict or anything, but I, you know, I'd say a moderately low carb diet. Uh, so I will focus on breakfast and lunch, which are pretty easy for me to be low carb and then dinner with the family. I will eat whatever the family is eating. And then I don't have to, uh, avoid that piece of garlic bread. Cause I freaking love garlic bread, <laughs> you know, Who doesn't right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and sometimes I want a little bit of crunch with my cheese. So I want that, that little tiny thin cracker to go with my cheese. I don't want to just eat the cheese. So if I, if I know that I've sort of 
hit my my targets and I created my wins for breakfast and lunch, I can give myself permission to relax for the latter part of the day. And that for me, it just keeps me sane. So and I think when people are trying to invest in their health, sometimes they go way overboard and then they, they become very, very critical of what they view as their failures. So I think mm. people really need to be good at allowing themselves to create wins and striking a balance. Yeah, no, I love that. You don't want to make yourself crazy and more stressed out because then the stress is going to backfire and maybe you won't sleep as well. I mean, all of those things are important as well. Yeah. Where can listeners follow and find you? I mentioned your blog, so I will link that for sure. But then are you active on social media or if somebody were interested in working with you, do you do any type of telemedicine? So I am not active on social media. I just never developed a real interest in it. So even though my my blog posts get sort of... uh, publicized through Twitter and Facebook like everybody else does. I, I don't really log in hardly at all to those platforms. I'm just not a social media person. Um, I do have an email address. Uh, it's listed on the blog and uh, people are more than welcome to email me. Uh, caveat to that is please do not email me with personal medical questions, but <laughs> if there is a topic that you think would really be good for my blog that you haven't seen me write about, or you know, if there's just some other reason that you wanna contact me, that's generally the best way to, uh, to get in touch with me. I do not sell anything. I don't make any money. I don't work with people for a cash, you know, fee basis as a consultant, um, for their, their health or anything like that. So this is, this blog's not a money-making endeavor for me. That said, if, if somebody wants to contact me about a money-making opportunity, I'm not against that, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to make money off my, my listeners, uh, I'm sorry, not my listeners, my readers. Um, It's just informational to try to help them and uh, just an outlet for me to be creative. And that's it. Awesome. Well, I will put links to everything you just mentioned. And this is for sure going to be two episodes. I'm so, so grateful for everything you shared with us here today. And I look forward to diving into your blog more. And I know listeners will do the same. Well, thanks, Brooke. I really appreciate you having me here today. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.